Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here at River Oaks. It is my joy and my privilege to bring to you uh, the message from God's Word today. So let's go to him in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you have spoken to us, and I pray that we would listen well. pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey and to follow you. pray that you would show us the armor that you have given to us. So Holy Spirit, please help us now as we come to your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've seen um, the movie or read the book, Lord of the Rings, you'll remember a section in that movie or book near the end of the first one where they go to a place called the Mines of Moria. If you haven't watched Lord of the Rings, you need to. It's really good. But the characters, they're going down into this mine and they're talking about what, what resource used to be mined out of those uh, now abandoned tunnels. And it was something called Mithril, which it's a fantasy you know, story, so it's not real. But in that fantasy world, it, what that resource is, it's an extremely precious and valuable metal. It is extremely lightweight. It's also impenetrable. So if you wear it, you pretty much will not get harmed. And so the characters are discussing this and talking about what this material is and the main character, Frodo, realizes he's actually wearing this right now. That he had been given a male coat that was underneath his clothes that was actually made out of this material. He had already been wearing this, but now he's starting to realize just how great of a defense he actually has, just how, how priceless and powerful this is. Well, in our passage in Ephesians 6, Paul's going to tell us that the next piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. In the ancient world, the, uh, the, the breastplate was extremely important. It covered your vital organs, defended your, your heart, your lungs. And going back to the Lord of the Rings, shortly after that, that conversation, a battle erupts, and that character actually gets gets stabbed in the torso, but he survives because he was wearing that armor. Well, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you already have that armor on. I'm not here to tell you to put it on. You already have on the breastplate of righteousness, but I want to talk with you and let you know exactly what it is that you have, just how priceless and valuable and defensive and impenetrable the breastplate that God has given you is this piece of armor to defend our hearts. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at half a verse this morning. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14b. But we'll read uh, starting back at verse 10 and going through verse 17. So hear now the words of the King of Kings 
and the Lord of Lords. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. (laughs) Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of the Spirit, or take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is the Word of God. May He add His blessing to it. Well, again, this morning we're talking about just that little phrase, the breastplate of righteousness. And I want to ask three questions about this breastplate. First, what is it? Why do we need it? And how do we use it? So what is this breastplate? Why do we need it? And how do we use it? And for those of you who are note takers, we're going to build our main theme from the answers of these questions. So so be patient with me. It's coming. So first, what is this breastplate? And really, even before we ask that question, we need to ask, what is righteousness? She may be someone who's new to church, who's new to Christianity, and you think that's just a big, a big word. What does it mean to be righteous or to have righteousness? Well, fundamentally, what it is, is, is God's standard for what is right. God is righteous. He is just. And so he tells us what is right and just and good. So what is this, this breastplate? Well, we have a few options. It could be the breastplate of, of our own righteousness. So Paul's calling us uh, to live in a certain way. On the other hand, Paul might not be talking about our righteousness at all, but the righteousness of God, of Christ himself. And and Paul, he really uses both of those all throughout his letters. He talks about those a lot. So I think what's going to help us is if we go and look up Paul's Old Testament reference that he's using here. So if you remember from Chris's sermon a few weeks ago, he told us that Paul is really drawing off of Isaiah. And for this particular piece of armor from Isaiah chapter 59. So let's turn back there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 59. Let's see if this can shed some light on what exactly this breastplate is. Is it it our righteousness or is it God's? Let's start at verse 1 of Isaiah 59. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We're not doing too good so far. 
keep reading. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters into suit justly. (laughs) No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Let's skip down to verse 9, but just know the verses in between aren't very flattering either. In verse 9, Isaiah says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. He's saying, we're not righteous. If this is about our righteousness, if that's what we're depending on to defend us, we're hopeless. We are hopeless. You know, in Isaiah's time, the biggest problem in the people of God was viewed as Babylon, right? They had been sent into exile, into captivity in this foreign land of Babylon. And they would have seen that, that empire and those people as their, as their main problem. But Isaiah is saying, no, it's not the enemy out there that's your problem. It's the enemy within you. The whole reason you got sent to Babylon was your sin. And that's what he's showing them here. But look at verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice, that there was no righteousness. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And skipping down to verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. It's not our righteousness. We have nothing to offer God. But he looked down and he saw us in our sin, in our unrighteousness, and God decided to come down and save us himself. This this righteous warrior that's described here, he, he donned his armor to come down and redeem a wicked people. We have nothing to offer God. Nothing except sin. I mean, Isaiah is the same prophet who said that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The the good things we do are even polluted by bad motives. But praise God, Isaiah is also the same prophet who said that God has clothed us in the garments of salvation and he has covered us in the robe of righteousness. That's because the divine warrior of Isaiah 59 is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So this warrior, he he entered into the battle and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, 
make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That is the gospel. That is the good news that the Son of God has taken our place and died for sinners. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, took our sin so that we who have rebelled against him might become righteous. This is what we call the great exchange of the gospel. And if you spend time here at River Oaks long enough, you're going to hear the phrase, Double imputation. I know I'm making you happy. There we go. <laughs> and it's a big word. All that means is that your sin, all of it, your sin was imputed or counted to Christ on the cross so that his perfect righteousness can count for you for all eternity. I can't say it any better Then 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you realize that Jesus became your sin on the cross? Jesus took the blame for all of your selfishness, your lust, your greed, your pride, your unbelief, your rebellion. And now in him, you become the very righteousness of God. Now all of his holiness, obedience, righteousness, love, his selflessness, his sacrifice, all of it counts for you. Jesus was treated like you so that you could be treated like Jesus. That is the great exchange. So whose righteousness is it? It's not ours. It could never be ours. This is the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now I want to stop for a moment and and talk about uh, what exactly this means, because in the Bible, I can talk in two ways about this. Uh, we often call this the, the passive obedience and the active obedience of Jesus. Passive obedience and the active obedience. Now, in his passive obedience, that's when Jesus obeyed in suffering the penalty of the law. We had broken the law. The law has a penalty for sin. Jesus suffered that penalty. That's the way we often think about the cross and the gospel, is that Christ died to take our death penalty. And that is true, but that's only one side of the coin. The other side is Christ's active obedience, which is where he, in his life, fully obeyed the law and fulfilled all of its demands and requirements for us. Romans 5 says that if we have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ, how much more will we be saved by his life? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said that he always did what was pleasing to the Father. 
So you see, this is more than just saying Jesus never sinned. That's true. And that is a glorious truth. But Jesus didn't just not sin. He actually lived a life of pure, 100%, high-octane obedience to the holy law of God. He was perfect in every sense of the word. And when you are united to him by faith, all of his perfections count for you. Shortly before he died, while he was laying in his deathbed with pneumonia, the theologian, Dr. J. Gresham Machen, he sent a telegram to his friend, John Murray. This is all the telegram said in his last days. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. Oh, that we will be able to say that on our deathbeds. We have a breastplate that will protect us to the very end. And that breastplate is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So that's what the breastplate is. Second, why do we need it? Why is it so crucial that we have this particular piece of equipment? I believe the reason is clear. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. Go back to Ephesians in verse 12 of chapter 6. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In verse 16, it talks about the, the flaming darts or the flaming arrows of the evil one. We have an enemy. And 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says that we should not be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs of his schemes, his, his tactics. And he has a whole toolkit full of tactics that he loves to use against the church and against the Christian. Deception, temptation, seduction, intimidation, persecution, all of these things he loves to bring against God's people. But I think the focus here for this particular piece of armor is Satan's tactics of accusation and condemnation. In Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, <laughs> the accuser who has been thrown down, but who accuses us day and night. He's like a prosecuting attorney trying to catch us in our sin and bring us before God the judge. The Puritan Thomas Manton had this very helpful insight about our enemy. He said, how often have I seen this? Satan first acts as deceiver and then as accuser. While men can be made to suck down sin, he will make it sweet in their mouths. But when the poison is down, he makes it bitter in their bellies. At the first, he tells them that there's no punishment for sin. And after they transgress, he tells them there's no mercy. That's what he does. He, he tempts us to sin, and then he condemns us for that very same sin. So kids, I want you to listen to me if you're listening on the live feed. Um, 
Or if you're here, maybe you'll understand this. You'll have dealt with something like this. And you adults can think back to your childhood days on the playground. So I want you to imagine a situation where you're on the playground, you're playing with friends, and a kid comes up and says, hey, you know what would be funny? If you took your gum out and stuck it in Susie's hair. Oh, wouldn't that be funny? You think, ooh, I don't know. Probably shouldn't do that. Susie wouldn't like that. Teacher wouldn't like that. And then the kid says, yeah, but it would be funny. And you think, yeah, it would be kind of funny. And so after a while, you end up, take the gum out, put it in Susie's hair. You know what that friend just do? Now he's run off to the teacher. He's saying, teacher, teacher, look. They just put gum in the hair. And then you get in trouble. That's exactly what Satan does. He says, well, wouldn't this be great? You should do it, no problem. And then he immediately goes and accuses you. And for you adults, we see this in our society all the time. It really is a satanic influence. They call it, you know, cancel culture, where you can um, you have someone um, who everyone respects, and then people dig back into their past. They go and find something they said or they wrote or they did years, maybe even decades ago, and then they get shut down, right? That's exactly what Satan does with us. He digs back through our past and pulls up things to use against us. He's not trying to cancel us. He's trying to destroy us. That's what he does. But I love this picture from the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, he says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. This is not the same Joshua from earlier in the Bible, Joshua and Caleb. This is a later Joshua, he's the high priest. <laughs> and, sta- and Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. This man was the high priest. He was supposed to be the representative of God's people. If anyone was holy, if anyone was godly, it would be him. But he's standing here before God in filthy clothes. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, Behold, I have taken your sin away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. What a beautiful picture. Satan was accusing the high priest, but the Lord came and in the words of Ephesians 6, he he put the breastplate of righteousness over his chest. And the mouth of the accuser was shut. Now, I want to tell you something about Satan's accusations. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. He's not bringing false witness. When he brings your sin before God and calls on him to judge you, he's not wrong. We've really sinned. We truly are guilty. And apart from the finished work of Christ, Satan would have his day in court against you. 
But thanks be to God, we are not left to ourselves. I love Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14, where Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. So yes, we have sinned. Yes, we deserve death and hell. The law demands a penalty against us. But Christ has taken those sins, taken those legal demands, and he has nailed them to his cross. But it gets even better in the next verse, in verse 15, where Paul says, He disarmed. So so by doing this, by nailing your sins to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan has been disarmed. If you are in Christ, he has nothing left to accuse you with. The price has been paid. Your debts have been cleared. Your crimes have been forgiven. There's not one sin that Satan can hold over your head. Because they've all been nailed to the cross. And you bear them no more. As Paul said in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Martin Luther put this wonderfully. He said, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner... I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins. And when you try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you don't terrify me but comfort me immeasurably. When you have the breastplate of Christ's righteousness over your heart, even when Satan comes with his fiercest accusations, they become sweet comforts that point you to Jesus. And this breastplate helps us in so many practical ways. Remember, the real command here is to stand firm. He says, stand firm, having already put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
So if you struggle with a guilty conscience, there is joy and freedom in this little half of a verse. When you feel ashamed or condemned or forsaken, don't forget about the breastplate. Christ's righteousness has been given to you and it can calm your fears and give you peace. We know that even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And if you struggle on the other end of the spectrum with with self-righteousness, there is rest for your soul here. If you try to stand in battle with your own righteousness to defend you, you're going to be defeated. Rely fully on Christ. Remember, He is the one who defends you. It doesn't rest on your shoulders. It rests on His. So look unto Jesus. And for a lot of us, both of those extremes can fluctuate throughout the week, even throughout a day. Right? Like You can have a really good day and you think, man, I was in the Word. I was, I was praying. I shared the gospel with someone. I was talking to my, my kids about the Lord. A really good day. God must really love me today. And the next day, you don't do those things. You're not in the Word. You didn't share the gospel with anyone. You were harsh with your spouse, with your kids. You slacked off at work. You maybe sinned in a big way. Now you think, oh, I was up here yesterday. Now I'm down here today. Oh, I need to get back up there. But on your best day, you cannot add to the love of God. And on your worst day, you cannot take away from the love of God. You are fully accepted in the beloved. Always, you are always secure in Christ. And if you struggle with fear, find your confidence in this piece of armor. Again, going back to Revelation 12, it says that the saints have conquered Satan through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony because they love not their lives even unto death. When you know that the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ has covered you, when you conquer Satan with the testimony of the gospel, you can be free to give up your life. What's the worst thing he can do to you? Kill you? Then what's going to happen? You're going to stand before God, fully accepted, seeing his face in the joy of his presence? That should take away all fear. You have the armor of God. There's going to be a picture up on the screen of a man named Leo Krauss. Mr. Krauss was a traveling salesman back in the 1920s. Um, and he sold his patented bulletproof vest. This was new at the time. And in order to make sales, part of his sales pitch was he would invite someone to come up and shoot him while he was wearing his vest. Prove that it worked. Prove that he, he trusted in his product. And he estimated by the time his career was done that he had been shot 4,000 times. So good for him. I hope he made a lot of sales. But when you know that you're protected, when you trust in the armor over your chest, you can do things that you never thought you could do. When you know that you have the bulletproof vest of the righteousness of Christ over your heart, you can do things that to the world would seem crazy. 
You can have boldness and fearlessness and courage to go out there and proclaim the gospel. This, this breastplate prepares us for the battle. But there's nothing that Satan wants more than to stir up fears and doubts within us. If he can get us feeling condemned, he can make us totally ineffective for the work of his kingdom. Have you ever felt too guilty to read the Bible? Or you've thought, ah, my conscience is pricked, I probably shouldn't pray, or and I couldn't share the gospel with this person after what I've done. Or have you ever looked at a screen to try to block out your guilt instead of turning to the only one who can truly relieve you of that burden? Satan wants to make you ineffective. And if you're a Christian in this room or listening, I'm sure that you feel confident that on the last day you'll be saved. That in the end, you'll go to heaven. But don't just think about the last day. Think about today. What's your standing with God today? How does He view you right now? Or a harder question, how does He view you five minutes after you've sinned? I think we often assume that during those times, we have to have this kind of... Uh, period of time where we think we have to beat ourselves up. We have to be really hard on ourselves. If we feel bad enough about my sin now, it'll kind of get me back into God's good graces and I can get back going again. It's really just a trying to atone for our own sins. Now, it's not a bad thing at all to feel remorse. It is good to feel the weight of our sin. The Holy Spirit brings conviction but that conviction always leads us to Jesus. When the evil one condemns us, that condemnation leads us only to despair. He loves to whisper lies in our ears, but they are lies. And they must be driven away with the truth of the gospel. Now I want to speak to those of you who may be listening who don't know Christ as your Savior. He's not your king. He's not your Lord. You are in a very dangerous situ situation. You have an enemy without Satan. You have an enemy within your own sin. And you have an enemy and you have no defense. You are helpless and hopeless and completely exposed. And there's a reason why your, con your conscience might torment you why you feel haunted by your past, or why you don't feel like you're good enough, and that's because you're not. Again, when Satan accuses you of your sin before God, he's right. You do deserve the wrath of God if left to yourself. But Christ has paid the blood price for you. He died for you, and more than that, he lived for you, and his perfect life and sacrificial death can count. For you, if you come to Him in faith. He is faithful to save all of those who come to Him. So come, turn from your sin. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your own goodness. It's not there. Trust in Christ alone and find life. So I think the answer to those first two questions give us our main theme. 
the righteousness of Christ defends us from sin's penalty and Satan's accusations. Now we can, we can say that. We can nod our heads and say, yes, I believe that. But do you really know it? In Proverbs earlier, it says, good news refreshes the bones. This is good news. I want it to be down in your bones, down in your soul. I want you to know that the righteousness of Christ defends you from your own sin and from Satan, the accuser. What a foundation to build our lives on. So as we come to our last question, I want us to think about some practical considerations when it comes to this breastplate. So how do we use it? How do we utilize it? How do we take advantage of what's been given to us by God? I want to talk about two things. Namely, remind others of this truth and remind yourself of this truth. Remind others and remind yourself. Going back to verse 10 that that starts off this whole section, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And that got me thinking about the life of, of King David at a time before he was king, where Saul was pursuing him, trying to kill him. And it says that his friend Jonathan went to him and strengthened his hand in God. 1 Samuel 23, 16. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. We need those kind of friends. We need to be those kind of friends. Sometimes, many times, I need one of you to come And help me to be strong in the Lord. We need to remind each other of the truths of the gospel. We need to encourage one another that we are fully clothed and completely protected by the righteous armor of Christ. So it's fine to have casual conversations. But so often we need to go deeper. We need to talk with each other about Jesus. And so I know... We often talk about why you should join a growth group, but this is why. This is why. I need to go there and hear people tell me about Christ and what He's done for me, who I am in Him. You need it too. I would encourage you to consider, if if you're not in one, to come to a small group so we can strengthen each other's souls in the Lord. But we also need to remind ourselves of the gospel. A few chapters later, David's in another bad situation. This time, no one's there to help him. So in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So yes, we need each other for strength, but we also need the ability to strengthen ourselves. I like to think that that maybe what David used in this situation was our text from the call to worship this morning, Psalm 103, a psalm that I've used countless times for comfort. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Notice that that is technically not a prayer. Most of the Psalms are prayers, but David isn't talking to God. He's talking to himself. 
to his own soul. We need to stop listening to ourselves so much. You need to shut down your inner monologue sometimes and start talking to yourself. Start calling your soul to worship the God who has saved you. So yes, I'm telling you that talking to yourself can be a good thing. This is what we mean when we say that you should preach the gospel to yourself. We need to remind ourselves of the truth about Christ every day, every moment. We're about to sing one of my favorite hymns. Before the throne of God above. And in that hymn, it shows us exactly what we should do when Satan comes against us. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. It's real. That guilt is real. What do I do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. When Satan comes up against us, look up. Look to Christ. He has made an end of all your sin. He is your perfect spotless righteousness. Look to him. There have been so many times where I've just sung that song by myself to encourage my heart in the Lord. So believer, take up your breastplate. Take up this breastplate of Jesus Christ and find strength for your soul. So now as we come to the table, we come as soldiers in need of strength for the battle. Christ our King gives us His own body and blood as our spiritual food. By faith, we feast with Him in the heavenly places so that we can leave and return to the battles on earth, battles in our home, in our cities, in our hearts. He has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So as you come to this table of grace, may it remind you, may it be an edible reminder for your soul that the righteousness of Christ defends us from sin's penalty and Satan's accusations. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you, we give you glory. We thank you that we are well equipped in the armor of Jesus Christ. Help us to stand strong. Help us to stand firm. Father, I pray now for anyone who may not know you, and this has stirred their hearts. For anyone who knows that they're not righteous and that they need a Savior, open their hearts to see Christ. Give them faith and repentance. Father, as we come to this table, as we come to the bread, I pray that we would see past just this physical bread and we would see into heaven and we would see the Lord Jesus who said that he is the true bread that comes down out of heaven and that he has given the bread of his flesh for the life of the world. I pray that we would, as we, as we come to this cup, that we would 
see it as the grapes that the twelve spies brought back from the land of Canaan. It would be a foretaste of our future victory, a victory promised. So, Father, may this table of grace strengthen us by your grace. Amen.